Welcome to the NBA Trades Podcast. I'm your host, Raphael, and today I have a really special guest. It's the OG, a legend. She is a senior writer for ESPN, Jackie McMullen. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. You know, looking back at it, so 10 years ago, the Celtics were in very hot hot water with their fans right now. This is a, a time where they were rebuilding, had a bunch of young guys like Sebastian Telfair, Delonte West, Al Jefferson, Gerald Green, Ryan Gomes, Rajon Rondo, Kendrick Perkins, a whole bunch of young guys, and Paul Pierce was their vet. So, you know, at this point, the team was really bad, and Paul Pierce was close to uh, or debating whether to uh, ask for a trade it, it seems what was that year like I think it was the 0607 season this was like a really low point for the franchise yeah it was bad it was very bad and, it, and I think it was a little bit bad by design I think um, you know no one ever admits that they're tanking but they only won 24 games that year and they had a 18 game losing streak that was just horrendous I remember, uh, I think it was about that year that Paul said that famous quote to me where he said, I'm your classic great player on a lousy team and it stinks. And that got him in all sorts of trouble with everybody. But he was telling the truth. Uh, he was injured during most of that 18-game losing streak. But, you know, he's, he's looking at it. He's in the prime of his career and he's thinking, man, what's left for me here? What's going to happen? I, I got I to gotta move forward. I, I want to win. And so I think had things not uh, developed the way they had that I think Pierce would have asked out of town. I remember two years earlier, they tried like crazy to trade him for the pick that would have been Chris Paul. Wow. Uh, so, uh, I mean, like, and that and that sort of brings back that old team, you know, with Antoine Walker. And sort of when Danny Ainge came in, he was ready to sort of uh, retool the team. Like, I think he felt that they weren't going to compete with the top of the East. You know, like the Nets at the time, Detroit was was uh, becoming a perennial contender. So he traded Antoine Walker to Dallas and then eventually ended up bringing him back in another trade. But uh, how did Pierce deal with sort of the constant, you know, changes after they sort of had found some success in the early 2000s with the whole Paul Pierce-Antoine Walker combo? Well, I think I think it was becoming apparent to everybody that it, maybe it was time for Antoine to go. And it, and it wasn't really even entirely his fault. It was just uh, the team needed a spark. They needed a change. Antoine had become the whipping boy a little bit, I think, in town, both from some members of the media and also uh, from the, the franchise itself. They they were trying to talk a lot about being professional. You know, Paul and Antoine were young guys, and they were trying to get them to take care of their bodies and not to be out partying and gambling and all that sort of thing. And So I think Antoine, unfortunately, was a little bit uh, a casualty of that. Uh, and Pierce was left to pick up the piece. And so the Celtics went through all that stretch. And, and so going into the summer of 2007, the Celtics have uh, one of the top picks in the draft. Obviously, they, they were hoping to get a, the number one pick in the lottery uh, with the worst record in the NBA at the time. You know, uh, Greg Oden and Kevin Durant were the two big names that teams are sort of like, who's going to go number one, number two? And then the Celtics end up sort of like the Tim Duncan situation where they weren't able to get either the number one or number two pick, and they couldn't draft one of those primetime players. And so going into that draft, everyone's talking about who's who's going to be number one, Greg Oden, Kevin Durant, and that debate for 
Portland and Seattle, who's going to end up where. And so out of nowhere, the Celtics make that trade. On draft day, they traded Delonte West, Wally Zerbiak, the draft rights to Jeff Green, who was a lottery pick that year, and a 2008 second round pick to the Supersonics for Ray Allen and uh, the draft rights to Glenn Davis, who was a second round pick. So that trade right. happens. Yeah, so that trade happens. And, I mean, that's a big-time move. Like, you know, Ray Allen, uh, Seattle, I think, wasn't really good at that point. And so he his time there had sort of run its course with Kevin Durant coming in after the Sonics drafted him. Uh, what did what did you think about the trade? I remember actually reading a story that you wrote, um, a column that you wrote, where you said you were talking to Danny Ainge about how, you know, Ray Allen's getting up there in age and, and shooting guards and their effectiveness usually, there's sort of a, a a point where they start to decline and 32 was sort of that age and Ray Allen was at that age and so you were sort of a little leery about the possibility of him sort of being able to stick to the same output that he had uh, produced throughout his uh, entire career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um fact, I remember talking to Danny after that deal and calling him and saying, what the hell are you doing? Um, because Ray Allen on his own didn't make any sense. Now, Ray defied the odds. I had all the statistics in the world. I had all the shooting guards, uh, their decline after the age of 30. It was marked. It was market. You could, I could name 10 of them. You know, the only one, the only one, I think at that time that really hadn't dropped off was Reggie Miller. So was Ray Allen going to be the exception to the rule? What I didn't know about Ray then that I do now is he was such a fastidious uh, person in terms of his preparation. He was actually, honestly, OCD. So it wasn't just his preparation for a game. It was what he put into his body, the amount of rest he got. I mean, he was way ahead of the curve of so many of these players today and coaches and GMs today who were, were concerned with sports science and all the, all the things that they want to get an edge. Ray was already doing that. So he was able to play into his late 30s at a very high level. So I would have been wrong in terms of forecasting him as someone that was a bad fit for that. But it, it didn't, the only way it made sense, and that became apparent after the while, for Ray to come was if they were getting another veteran with him. And having talked to Kevin Garnett through the years, you know, in the wake of everything that happened, there's no doubt that when they added Ray Allen, he started to change his mind a little bit. He'd known Ray a long, long time. Uh, they both have South Carolina roots. He knew how good he was, how tough he was, and he started thinking, okay, well, maybe. Because in the meantime, in Minnesota, they're asking him, to, you know, his, he, he can opt out of his contract in the, in the next year, 2007 to 2008. The owner there, Glenn Taylor, wants him to take a pay cut. They're not winning. So all of a sudden the tide starts to turn a little bit. And, and it did definitely turn, you know, like you had mentioned, the, like the Celtics have been interested in Kevin Garnett, like a, a numerous teams, the Phoenix Suns, I know, uh, almost acquired him. And I think Amari Stoudemire would have been involved and, and the Lakers were also very interested in him. And so when the Celtics tried to trade for him, he did, he refused, like he didn't want to, uh, to, he would have opted out of his contract and he would have, he pretty much put that threat yeah, there out no there. Yeah, no guarantee, right? Yeah. Andy Miller made it clear that. Boston should not trade for him, hoping that there would be any guarantee that he would re-sign with them. That was, but that was before Ray Allen. That yeah. Was before the other thing that happened that was very important was, of course, Garnett had some interest in the Lakers. Got a home in Malibu. Spends a lot of time on the West Coast. But during that summer, 
that's when Kobe Bryant was unhappy. He was telling Mitch Kupchak he wanted out. And that made Garnett leery of going there. He didn't want to go to the Lakers. Kobe Bryant wasn't going to be there. Yeah, that's a, especially if Kobe's not there, um, that would be a very, very bad move for KG. So going into, I guess it's it's July, you know, the trade happened late in June of 2007. So eventually the Celtics and Timberwolves, you know, make the trade. The Timberwolves got uh, Ryan Gomes, Gerald Green, Al Jefferson, Theo Ratliff, Sebastian Telfair, two first-rounders that became Wayne Ellington and Johnny Flynn in the 2009 draft. The Celtics obviously got Kevin Garnett in the deal, uh, the big part of the deal. So that that was a big move. I remember that Al Jefferson at that time was considered probably one of the better prospects. You know, he had been in the league for a few years with the Celtics, had grown and developed into a solid, you know, really good offensive player. People viewed him as a potential all-star, like uh, multiple-time all-star and so the Celtics were very reluctant to trade him in any of the, the trade talks they had with any of the stars they were trying to pursue, sort of like Jermaine O'Neal, I know they were going after, and other, you know, NBA stars that they were trying to pursue. And he was sort of the, the piece that every team sort of wanted to acquire. Uh, now, with, with KG, like, obviously you would expect, like, anybody is pretty much up for debate in a trade for Kevin Garnett. Uh, how did those pieces uh, become decided rather than, say, you know, Rondo had only played one year and Kendrick Perkins had been in the league for a few years? Uh, how did how did Boston and Minnesota come to that agreement in terms of who Minnesota was getting, like, the prospects? Well, I mean, Jefferson was the centerpiece of the deal for Minnesota, and he was a great young player, and I would argue has had a great career in the NBA. Uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't Kevin Garnett. But he was uh, a very, very fine player for them. And who knows, if you had surrounded him with a little better talent, what would have happened for Al Jefferson. Of course, he ended up with some knee issues as well. But he was a great kid and uh, very well liked in Boston. And you could see the potential. And I can remember when they made the deal, some people actually saying, oh, I don't know if this is a good deal. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Kevin Garnett, are you kidding me? But that's how much people thought of, of Al Jefferson. He handled himself so well. Ratliff was simply in that deal because he was an expiring contract. That was why he was, it had nothing to do with Theo himself. I think he only played a dozen games, if that, for Minnesota. It was all about his expiring contract. Now, the Timberwolves did want Rondo, um, but the Celtics liked what they had. They'd only seen him for a year, but they liked what they saw. So they actually ended up uh, sending cash to the Timberwolves in this deal, and they, in essence, paid the Timberwolves a million dollars so that Rondo wasn't included in this deal. Wow, that's amazing because I think people don't really know like that specifically that $1 million really <laughs> is how you keep Rajon Rondo. But, you know, the the other guys too, Gerald Green, you know, he was expected to become like a star at one point. Uh, sort of people viewed him as a guy who had all the tools to succeed in the NBA, but he sort of never figured out. He's carved out a great, you know, professional career in the sense that he's played for a really long time. But uh, he never really was able to burst on the scene like people had expected, right? Well, he was pretty young uh, when the Celtics drafted him, obviously. And uh, I don't know, he was, he was, you know, he was picked in the 2005 draft, so they had had him for a couple years by then. And I think there were some maturity issues. You could still argue there still are. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think as talented as he was, they were willing. You know, they, nothing was going to stop them. Everybody on the roster, with the exception of Pierce, and as it turns out, probably Rondo, 
was available if they were going to get Garnett. They, they were, you know, I mean, they gave him two first-round picks, as you know. You mentioned them. Uh, the Timberwolves whiffed on both of them, Johnny Flynn and Wayne Ellington, you know. So uh, it's not like this. I guess what I'm trying to say is had the Timberwolves done their job the right way, uh, this, this draft would have been, I mean, this this um, this trade might have not been so, you know, one one. Um, one-sided. I mean, Steph Curry got picked right after Johnny Flynn in that draft. DeMar DeRozan was in that draft. Uh, Brandon Jennings is in that draft. Uh, Gerald Henderson was in that draft. Drew Holiday, Ty Lawson, Darren Collison, lots of other players. Um, I think even Taj Gibson might have been in that draft. So, um, you know, if Minnesota had done perhaps a better job of of drafting, they might have come away a little better off than they did. That's very true. And so, you know, like you said that some Boston fans did, were a little skeptical of the trade, but nationally, I think the Celtics, you know, were were known as the big winners with getting KG. And, you know, the Timberwolves were heavily criticized, and I, and I remember that a lot of people sort of tried to mention uh, Kevin McHale's relationship with Danny Ainge and sort of, oh, he's just, you know, he's get, doing a favor for the Celtics. Uh, yeah, a, that's a, nonsense. Yeah. Now, did the two have a good rapport? Could they negotiate? You know, could they negotiate honestly because they're friends and they weren't going to BS one another? Absolutely. But you know, Kevin McHale didn't want to trade Kevin Garnett. It was his owner that said they had to trade him. Kevin Kevin McHale wanted no part of trading Kevin Garnett. That was his owner, Glenn Taylor, that made that happen. So I really think uh, you know the Laker. You get this. You get this from Laker fans a lot. This idea that. Uh, McHale took a lesser deal uh, for for KG, but again, with Kobe's situation so unsettled, that's just not some place that Garnett was going to go to and you know sign on to long term without knowing Kobe's future. Now, uh, Boston is is probably one of the best, and not probably it's one of the best sports town cities in the world. And you know, for me, I went to to UMass Amherst, so I'm a little bit far away on the on the west <laughs> western part of Massachusetts. But just going there after the trade, I went in 2008, so it was after they won the championship. But it was just completely Boston, a sea of green at school. Everybody had a Celtics shirt, Celtics jersey, or whatever. That it was peak Boston Celtics. Uh, when that trade happened. What was it like in the city, just sort of the reaction and sort of the the rise in expectations from a team that, you know, I think had won 16 or 17 games that year to going to a team now we're talking about competing for a championship right away? Yeah, it was pretty uh, it was pretty dramatic. Now, of course, when Larry Bird arrived, the same thing happened. They were a lousy team, and then overnight they became a good team, a great team. And so it's not like they hadn't seen it before. I remember having a discussion with Bob Ryan about this, and Bob is my mentor. He's someone I admire. He's forgotten more basketball than I'll ever know. But I remember him being very skeptical about this trade. He, he had his doubts that it was going to put them over the top, and that really surprised me um, that he, he did. I didn't. I thought right away that this, this was a team that could win it, but I thought it was really important for them to win it right away, not to, you know, get to know each other and wait a couple of years. They didn't have that kind of time, or at least I didn't think they did. I thought the window was smaller than it turned out to be. But right away, from the minute uh, Garnett got to town, you could see the difference in the locker room, in the way people handled themselves. And this dude was so intense. He was crazy, absolutely crazy. But Pierce 
after getting over the shock of how crazy he was and how crazy Ray was with all his OCD and expecting Paul to sit on the same seat in the plane every trip and to wear the same outfits and all those other things, uh, you know, I think Pierce started thinking, wow, this this is my chance. And uh, he was in the best shape of his life that career, Paul, that year Paul Pierce was. He, he became, he grew up quite a bit, and he became the leader of that team. Garnett was the defensive leader. Paul was sort of the overall leader and and Ray was the guy that just kept everybody on. It was a great combination. Uh, it was literally a three-pronged monster, truly. And and they've, they've formed such good chemistry right away. Uh, I know they've made uh, mention of sort of that trip that they took in preseason where they went overseas. They got to really bond. Uh, U- U- Ubuntu was like the big thing. I, I That one will stick forever <laughs> with me. Um, and they got off to a, a start that, you know, usually when teams acquire such big names, they, they struggle. You think of Miami, LeBron, and D-Wade, and Chris Bosh, how long it took for them to figure it out. But for the Celtics at that point, they got these guys and they started off 29-3. and They ended up 66-16 and with the best record in the NBA. Were you shocked at sort of how easily and how seamless they all just sort of figured out their roles and were successful right away? What I was shocked to learn after the fact was, because it looked just like you described, like it was smooth, like the chemistry was there right away. And of course, I found out after the fact that wasn't the case at all. You know, uh, Ray was struggling with his reduced role, taking less shots. Pierce was struggling to figure out how to manage these very, very strong personalities. Uh, it, was, it wasn't as easy as it looked. They made it look easy, but they're really behind the scenes. There was all sorts of stuff going on. You know, I remember Rondo and Perkins telling me uh, pregame, Ray Allen and, and uh, Garnett getting into it, because Ray would get there to the arena, you know, three hours before everybody. He'd go through his very specific routine, his pregame shots. He'd shave his head, he'd eat his chicken and rice or his salmon and rice or whatever he was going to have. And so by the time, you know, it got to be an hour and a half before the game, let's say, he was all loose, he was all done. Well, Garnett was just getting locker, he's getting, he's frothing himself into a lather. And Ray's joking around with reporters in the locker room. And so that didn't sit well with Garnett. So, you know, those two ended up in a couple of different shouting matches because they had different ways that they went about preparing for a game. And so they had to learn that. As Ray told me once, we were all in one big bubble, and we had to find a way to make room for everybody to do their thing within that bubble. And isn't that really interesting? Like, I think sort of sometimes the result is sort of what is focused on more than, you know, the process. Because, you know, since they won, no one really had to ask that question of whether you guys are fitting well together because if the results are you guys are winning then there's no real need to no real need to ask that uh whereas like you know when the heat were nine and eight and everyone's wondering why they're struggling uh you they they sort of have to answer questions as to you know lebron and Dwayne wade are not the greatest perimeter shooters in terms of perimeter players so they have to sort of figure out who's going to handle the ball and who's going to do this and who's going to do that and so they sort of have to answer that question because when you lose you know, people are going to ask, why are you? Why did you lose? Whereas when you win, people are not going to ask that, right? Yeah, there's some truth to that. Although I look at the Golden State Warriors last year, and, and you know, Durant, they brought Durant on board, and everyone's like, oh, this means less shots for Clay. What's going to yeah. happen with Steph Curry? And there were some extreme adjustments for them in the way they played the game. A lot of it had to do with pick and roll. I think they envisioned initially that Durant and Curry would be fantastic together in the pick and roll game. But the truth of the matter is, both of them shine when they have the ball, and one of them had to not have the ball. 
so after a while, then when the, when the, the staff, the coaching staff, realized that they just scrapped it all together and found other ways to make those guys fit. So there was an adjustment period there, too. But again, they were winning. So, you know, you heard about, you didn't hear about it a lot, but there, there were adjustments every time you add players, especially veterans who are set in the ways. And that was certainly the case with Ray and, and KG. That's definitely true. So the team, you know, is is heavily favored going into the playoffs. Uh, they had a great year, and and so they go in and they face Atlanta, the Atlanta Hawks, who I think they were the first time making the playoffs since uh, 1999, I think. So it's their, uh, you know, it, the Hawks have a, a bunch of young guys, Al Horford, Josh Smith, Joe Johnson, a uh, team not really expected to be able to compete with the Celtics. And Boston easily handles them in the first two games. Then Atlanta wins two games at home, and it sort of just goes back and back until the Celtics blow them out uh, in Game 7 at home. Uh, was that series a shocker, sort of just how competitive it was and how Atlanta sort of just stayed in the series when it was sort of expected to be a sweep early on? Yeah, it was a little bit. And uh, I felt the same way in the next round against Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia put a scare into them, too. And I think they had just had their way with teams so much during the, uh, the regular season. I think everybody just assumed it was going to, you know, continue on that way. And we know better, right? We all know better because we know that in the playoffs, everything changes. Uh, you can game plan much better because you're going to play the same team six, seven times in a row. Uh, the game slows down, so any kind of transition points that you're going to get during the regular season, those are going to go away. You have to know how to play in the half court, all those kind of things. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was a little surprising, but you know, it probably shouldn't have been, right? In retrospect, and. Rondo had his moments in the playoffs, especially like he really stepped up. He had a, a, a lot of big games throughout the playoffs, including the when they made it to the NBA Finals. How was his lead developing? And then all of a sudden, you go from a uh, bad basketball team to uh, you're playing with three future Hall of Famers. Well, I mean, there really wasn't much of a choice there. Uh, you know, they had Eddie House, but he wasn't really a point guard. Uh, they had Tony Allen, they had Sam Cassell, and Sam was, you know, Sam was long in the tooth at that point. Uh, but I do think, I think when you play with great players, you become better. And I think Rondo was smart enough to listen to what Ray Allen and, and Sam Cassell and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce were teaching him. Now, I think as he got older, he wasn't as good a listener. And I think that's when he started to run into problems. Uh, but at this point of his career, he's still a young kid. He's still trying to prove himself, and he was so important to them uh, during that entire postseason. Very important. So they they uh, play another close series, like you said. They uh, beat uh, LeBron and the Cavs in the second round in seven games. Uh, Paul Pierce and LeBron had one of the biggest duels, uh, probably that in recent memory in the playoffs. Uh, I think Game 7, they both just went back and forth. It was probably one of the better playoff games you'll see. And then in the, the conference finals, they beat the Detroit Pistons, uh, the team that had always been there in the conference finals, one of the best uh, eras of, of basketball in Detroit basketball. They beat uh, the Pistons in six games. And then they go to the finals and play the Los Angeles Lakers and Kobe Bryant. So, you know, going into that final series, or on the cusp of, or on the brink of, of you know, putting together one of the biggest runs in like a year span and uh, winning a championship. Uh, what was the feeling like in Boston for that? Like this team just went from 
really bad to all of a sudden now in the finals. Well, by the time they got to the finals, and especially because it was against the Lakers, and you know, I don't need to explain that whole thing to anybody, <laughs> uh, I think people were excited, but they were a little wary because it had been a struggle. It had been a struggle for Boston through, through each round, as you, as you point out. And, uh, and I think there was also a little bit of concern, um, you know, how much do the Celtics have left? They, they, that, that Cleveland series was really uh, pretty taxing. But, uh, you know, a lot of things, I've seen a lot of things. I was just astonished at how dramatically Doc Rivers outcoached Phil Jackson in that series. It almost seemed at times as if Phil Jackson was disconnected from the action. It just shocked me. Uh, I thought Doc was, was a superior coach in that series by, by quite a bit. And I really think that made a difference. And the game that really, there are a few moments that really do stand out to me. Uh, the Paul Pierce, the wheelchair. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely one of the uh, more interesting uh, situations that ever happened. I mean, it, it had to be one of the craziest things to see him carry down a wheelchair, come back on the court, and then, you know, just ball out. Like, uh, make a bunch of big shots and uh, get the team back. It sort of reinvigorated the the crowd and reinvigorated sort of just the game the game had sort of been uh taking a little dive when he got hurt in terms of the uh you know the Celtics fans everything and when Paul Pierce came back and got on the court and hit that three I mean it was one of the craziest moments I could uh remember from watching basketball yeah he um you know I've talked to him about of course he gets ribbed about that all the yeah. time and uh <laughs> You know, he, he thought he tore his ACL. He really did. At that moment, he thought he was done, and he didn't ask for the wheelchair, obviously. That just was a precaution from the medical staff. They threw him in that chair. When, you know, he wasn't in a position to argue about it. But, uh, you know, at that moment, the pain was, was very real. The feeling in his knee, I remember he said it just felt weird. He thought he, thought he was done. He really did. And so, you know, when he found out he wasn't, you know, they, I'm sure, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure they... You know, stuck him with a needle, juiced him a little bit in that knee, and sent him back out. That's what they usually do, and uh, worry about how much it's going to hurt later. So they reminded me a little bit when, when Bird. I was there, you know, for Bird in the, the series against the Pacers when oh, he yeah. fell and he hit his head, and he hit his head so hard. And of course, in today's NBA, he would never have been able to return the floor. There was no doubt he was concussed. Absolutely no doubt that he was concussed in that game. But you know, back then they didn't have the same protocol, and so. He was back in the locker room, and everybody, you know, all the visiting writers are like, wow, he's done. I'm like, no, he isn't. You know? <laughs> and then when he came back out again, the place exploded. So all those years later, when Pierce did that, it reminded me just a little bit of that. Uh, so the, the Celtics took a 2-0 lead, uh, won the first two games in Boston, and uh, the Lakers won Game 3 in Los Angeles. And then Game 4, the Lakers go up by a lot. I forget how much it was by, but they were up by at least in the 20s. And the Celtics came back. Uh, and one that really sort of changed the series because from then on, like the Celtics knew going in, going into Game Five at Los Angeles, whether they won or lost, they would have two games at home to take care of business. Uh, regardless, even if they had lost Game Six at home, they'd have Game Seven at home. So you know, do you remember that game? That game probably to me was like, whoa, the Lakers really are are still in this series and they have a chance to, you know, win game five, game four, then go to game five and possibly take a 3-2 lead going back to Boston. That comeback has to be one of the biggest comebacks. I think it was the biggest comeback in finals history, at least. 
Oh, yeah, it's funny because I, I just remember, I remember at halftime they were, I think they were up 18 at halftime, the Lakers were. And, uh, and, and just, again, based on what I knew, mostly from Garnett, I thought, you know what, Garnett's a reluctant scorer. He'd rather not, he'd rather pass it, he'd rather have somebody else do it. I thought they're going to get him a little more involved, whether he wants to or not. And uh, as I recall, I think that happened early in the third quarter. They started going to Garnett because the, the, the Lakers really didn't have a great matchup. But the interesting thing in that game was, you know, Kobe, Kobe had a, he really didn't have a great series uh, at all against the Celtics. And in that game in particular, um, you know, he kind of, he sort of came, started to come alive a little bit. And that, if you were a Celtics fan, was what was going to make you nervous, right? Because that's the way you're going to lose to a, a talent like that. Uh, but but it didn't it didn't pan out. I think he was. I don't remember the stats. I don't have them in front of me. But I, I don't think he had twenty points. I don't think anybody on the Lakers did. And uh, and so after that game, it was kind of it was impossible to imagine that the Celtics were going to lose. At least in my mind. And as it turned out, I would say the same was true with the Lakers because they barely showed up for the for Game Six. Uh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, so after they won. Um... In Game 5 in Los Angeles, Game 6 was a complete rout. Uh, you know, Rondo had a great game. Pretty much everyone on the Celtics had a great game. Uh, that one, and, and the game was pretty much over halfway through the the first, second, around, like, somewhere around the first or second quarter, the game was pretty much over. Now, uh, KG does the anything is possible speech. Paul Pierce wins finals MVP. You know, for that championship to happen so quickly, for them to all come together so easily in terms of just, the, I guess, more so the success part. What was it like to sort of see that team just, you know, figure it out and, you know, go through a tough playoff stretch like they really did have a lot of challenges in every round? What was it like to see that team sort of just come out on top? Well, I think I enjoyed it mostly because of Pierce. I covered Pierce start to finish, and he had some serious growing pains in Boston. I... I was so critical of him at times because he really gave me no choice. He did so many immature things, you know. He uh, when he wrapped his face, you know, after he got hit in the jaw in that Pacers playoff series, and he oh, yeah, showed up to the press conference with his face wrapped in that that towel or that bandage or whatever the heck it was. I mean, he did so many things like that. It used to drive you crazy because you could see the talent, you could see the ability. And I've told him this, and I've said it many times. I've never seen a player grow the way Paul Pierce did and so for me I really even though you know Garnett was in many ways the heart soul of the team for me to see Pierce get that championship and to get it in Boston and to get it as the MVP I thought wow I'm not sure I've ever seen a turnaround like this with a player so for me that's why it was so enjoyable yeah and I mean that's like the interesting thing he went from almost demanding a trade to winning a championship and winning a finals MVP. And and I do remember that, uh, you know, um, the, the Pacers thing. Because they, I think, uh, and they ended up winning that game, which is really funny. Um, but I remember yeah. that but he, uh, just, yeah, the you know, elbow. They, didn't, they weren't going to win the series, you know. Yeah. Not, uh, it was just, uh, Paul just did some things that were, but when he was he was young, he was young. He'll be the first to tell you. He'll, he'll he, he, you know, he he's pretty honest about all of it in this day and age. I think, the shame of it for Pierce and for Garnett and Allen is that, you know, if, if Garnett doesn't hurt his knee, you're talking about a team that wins two, maybe even three championships. And, we, you know, we can debate all day whether they should have made that trade uh, with, Ken, you know, trading Kendrick Perkins to Oklahoma City, whether that cost them a championship or not. I think the thinking at the time was 
that Shaquille O'Neal, they had all their plus-minus numbers. And Shaquille O'Neal, was when he was on the floor with them that year, they were unbelievable. The numbers just jumped off the page how good they were with Shaquille O'Neal as their center. But he had that horrible Achilles injury that ended up uh, requiring for him to have major surgery, and it ended up ending his career. So... Uh, so there's a lot of what if with that with those guys, uh, Garnett, Pearson, Allen. It just feels like they should have come away with more than one championship. Yeah, that, and I think that's the biggest thing that you know that they only won one championship, which is like only. I mean, they still did win a championship. Um, and and that's a good point. Like they they had a lot of depth at that time when they had uh, signed Jermaine O'Neal too, and they had Shaq, and they had Big Baby, and you have Kevin Garnett. So you you could understand the thinking that. They felt that they had a lot of depth uh, in the front court that they could trade Kendrick Perkins and sort of get a little bit younger and get Jeff Green, who you know they had traded to Seattle first. So th- that's definitely a good point. Um, so that yeah, they underestimated. You know what they did though? They underestimated Perkins' value in the locker room. He was uh, the glue guy of that team, and he's the one that could yell at KG and and tell him cut it out and tell Ray and. Rhonda, stop bickering. He was that guy. And Jeff Green, wonderful person, one of my favorite people, actually, but definitely not that guy. A guy that kept to himself, a guy that never quite reached his potential. Uh, so, you know, there's no way to spin that trade. That was a bad trade for Boston. And so... You know, one of the that that season that they that they won the championship, they had a lot of really good, interesting role players from uh, you know Sam Cassell and PJ Brown, who were midseason pickups, to Scalabrini, James Posey, who they signed for one year, Eddie House, who they signed after they traded for Garnett and and uh, Ray Allen, Tony Allen, who you know was coming back from uh, ACL tear uh, early on in his career, and uh, Brian Scalabrini. Uh, yeah, and, and like Perkins too, like we mentioned, uh, and Leon Poe too, who who played such a critical part in the playoffs for them. Who was the most interesting person outside of the, you know, like the starting five who, like, maybe people would be shocked, but was like an interesting cover, like, was an interesting person to talk to on the team? Oh, uh, well, the guy that, the other glue guy besides Perkins was posing. You know, he walked in there and he told me a great story, uh, he got there in preseason. You know, he was signed before the season. So he went overseas with the team. They're practicing in a little gym outside of Rome. And it's the starters versus the subs. And the subs have it going on. And they're winning. And, you know, it's game to five or whatever. And Garnett cheats. He changes the score. He doesn't give them a basket. And uh, Posey's like, hey, nope. Not in Casey's ball game, next one, and, and Posey's like, uh-uh, nope, you're not going to dog us like that. And so he stood up to Garnett, and the two of them were chest to chest in this little gym in Italy, and uh, and it really set the tone. It really set the tone for everyone's going to be accountable. That includes you, KG. We just won this game, and you're not taking it from us. So he was the guy that I think uh, you could tell he was going to be a coach, and of course he's an assistant coach with Cleveland now. And um, and the coaching staff too, you know, Doc. Uh, I think early on in his career, like with Orlando, the people thought he did a good job, especially that first year before uh, they signed uh, Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill. And you know, he won Coach of the Year that season, and you know, he had a good run, and then sort of that ran its course, and then he went to the Celtics, and he had sort of a varying success while they were trying to rebuild. What did it mean for him for for him to 
as the coach to win that championship and what did what do you think he brought to the table that gelled so well with the players well he was just brutally honest with them honestly he just you know he didn't have any time for nonsense and uh you know ray was a challenge we've already talked about that because of his you know need to have everything a certain way and so he had to talk ray off the ledge you know ronda was was a young player who at times could be petulant, so they were battling a little bit, although not quite as much back then. It, it, it got a lot worse later. Uh, so he had a lot of divergent personalities to manage. He did that very well. He had a great relationship with Danny. He was smart enough to have a good relationship with ownership. So uh, obviously when you win a championship, it validates you as a coach. Ask Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle only got one, but you know he can always say he's a championship coach. I think the same thing happened to Doc. And because, again, he's so thoroughly out-coached Phil Jackson, people started talking about him as one of the next great coaches in this in this league. Yeah. And, he, and he's really established that. I mean, obviously, like, the stuff that happened this past week with him t- uh, losing his uh, presidency, but still, you know, still considered a really good coach and has been able to build a solid career for himself uh, after his playing career. So... Now I guess the the toughest question. I feel like everybody asks this though. I bet you've heard this so much. Are is Ray Allen and and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce? Are they all going to come together? We know Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce are cool, and they still hang out all the time. And pretty much everybody on the team hangs out <laughs> except for Ray Allen. What do you think about that? And will they ever ever forgive Ray Allen for something that happened so long ago? Well, the truth of it is, they were never really friends with Ray Allen. They were teammates, and there's a big difference. Um, when they were together as a team, they played as a team. Um, but, you know, I did a long interview with Paul Pierce some years ago and him talking about charity events. When a, when a player on a team had a charity event, everybody showed up. But when Ray had one of his charity events, they all showed up. But when Rondo had a charity event, Ray wouldn't show up. And, you know, Ray, Ray played a lot of golf, and he often was playing with Doc and Danny, and sometimes the team doctor. So I think he separated himself from those guys, either willingly or unwilling. So to say they were close friends, and then when he went to Miami, it was a betrayal of our friendship, then that's ridiculous. It's not, it's not true. It's not how it was. As, as Pierce said to me, the real big three was him, Garnett, and Sam. They hung out together all the time. In his mind, they were the real big three. So I don't think Paul Pierce, for instance, really has any sour feelings for Ray any longer. I think he wasn't happy when Ray made the decision he made, but it, it's really not that. It's really, it's really just they were never that close with him, really, to begin with. And there was also definitely a big conflict by the time Ray left between Ray and Rondo. There's no question about that. And KG and Rondo were very close, and I think it became a matter of it's me or him, and I think KG said, well, I'm back in my boy Rondo. So. Wow. Uh, <laughs> a little awkward, but hopefully, you know, hopefully, I do hope that they can at least celebrate it together when they do, a, you know, some kind of 10-year anniversary celebration next year in June or, or whatever, and so hopefully they can, you know, mend that, mend those uh, uh, awkward relationships. Okay, so so thank you for taking the time. Um, I do have one final question. See, this is, like, uh, really interesting to me. I watched on Around the Horns uh, Twitter you guys opening the skybox packs uh, with the basketball cards. And so that was, like, great. That was, like, really fun. And so what I was uh, taking aback watching, you, like, when uh, I think Tony opened up all of the cards, like, he was name dropping names like Winston Garland, Antoine Carr, and you, like, knew right away, like, 
this fact about that guy, who he played for, uh, that Antoine Carr got a big contract extension at one point. So I'm going to just drop uh, three random uh, Boston Celtic names, and I want to hear what you have to say about them as the final part. So this is going to be like from like the 80s to the 2000s. So the first person I could think of was Jerome Moiso. Do you remember him, and what do you think about Jerome Moiso? I thought... What's he doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Truthfully, I didn't understand it, then or now. <laughs> That's what I could give you. Um, and then from the 90s, uh, he was t- sort of towards the end of his career at this point. Xavier McDaniel. Oh, I loved X. X was, uh, X was, uh, it was an interesting, he was the, before, um, before Al Horford, X was the biggest free agent they signed. That was, he was it. And I remember when I saw him, he came, I, I had, you know, I hadn't seen him since he signed. He was on the court, and I said, hey. And he goes, who do you want me to rip for? He was kidding, of course, but that was the kind of guy. He was really a reverend. I liked X a lot. Um, and he, you know, he kind of got a bad rap there. He was trying to whip some sense into some of those young players, and they really weren't having any of it. It's too bad. I think X, at a different point of his career and at a different time when the Celtics were around, it would have been a great fit. Unfortunately for him, it wasn't in this particular instance. And uh, how about Fred Roberts? Uh, Fred Roberts was a gentleman, a real gentleman, spindly, skinny guy, um, tough. He was a tough player, and uh, guys made fun of him. He was a kind of a golly gee kind of guy, and at all they made terrible fun of him. But he was uh, he was a great teammate. That's what I would say mostly about him. And the final one, which I always thought was a unique player on the Celtics in the late 80s, early 90s, he was sort of a part of the transition from the big three to what they were going to do in the future, uh, and then he ended up going overseas, so you probably know who I'm talking about now, uh, Brian Shaw, and then he got traded to Miami when he came back, but what right. did you think about Brian Shaw? Well, I was there when they drafted Brian Shaw, and he was the first person, player I ever saw to get into it with Rod, Red Arback over a contract. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but he went to Italy rather than yeah. play for the contract offer that the Celtics made him. I thought it was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen. And as I got to know Brian uh, later on in later years, um, it didn't surprise me he did that. He was a very principled guy. He was very, very close with Reggie Lewis. I always attached Brian and Reggie together. Um, DJ, you know, helped mentor him and, and help him improve. And then all of a sudden Brian Shaw was better than Dennis Johnson at the end of his career. And that was hard for DJ to take. So Brian was put in some very difficult uh, positions when he was here in Boston. I thought he would get another chance at a head coaching job. He had the one shot with the Nuggets that didn't go well. Uh, for some reason, the Lakers over the years have resisted hiring as a full-time coach. And I'm wondering now if he's just accepted it's not going to happen. He is an assistant there now with Luke Walton. A really smart guy. Very smart. Yeah, and he's always been at the on the precipice of that. I mean, he's always been like the lead assistant, the associate uh, head coach. But you know, hopefully, he does get another shot. And yeah, that was the the uh, him going to Italy was. I read a lot about that recently, and so I was really interested to see. And then he got traded to Miami for Sherman Douglas, and so it led to a whole lot mm-hmm. of things. But yeah, uh, Elmas I believe the team was. Yeah. So uh, it's so. Yeah. He, um, yeah. Was, uh, I liked Brian a lot. I. You know, um, I got to know his family a little bit because I, I think I did a story on him when he first arrived. His mother, Barbara, was one of the most lovely people I've ever been around, and it was just so tragic what happened to poor Brian's family. They were uh, visiting him 
Um, he was playing in a game. They were driving back late at night. It was his sister, his sister's infant child, and his parents. And I, I forget who was driving, but whoever it was fell asleep, and they, they crashed, and everybody was killed except for the little baby who Brian has raised as his own. Yeah, it's definitely one of the the heartbreaking stories in uh, in sports, really in sports or just in anything. That's definitely a really yeah, sad terrible. story. Yeah, yeah, really terrible. Uh, His mom was so lovely, really. Yeah, um, uh, and oh, finally, another. Uh, this is the last play. This is the last last player. Uh, Stoiko Vrankovic. Is that how you pronounce that? Stoiko Vrankovic. Yeah. yeah, he was. Um, he was. A, you know, he should have been better. He didn't really adapt so well to the culture in Boston. One of his problems was he smoked like a chimney. But he and Larry Bird were great friends. Larry kind of adopted Stoiko, and, and they had a lot of fun together. Uh, Stoiko was very good in his home country of Croatia, um, uh, but uh, he just never quite, it never quite happened for him here in Boston. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Like, uh, that was fun to, to really go through that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of great stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Jackie. Really appreciate it coming on the podcast and talking about a lot of interesting trades and whatnot, and also some random basketball card type of bios <laughs> on players. Okay, great, Raphael. All right, thank you. All right, this was the NBA Trades Podcast. I'm your host, Raphael. You can like the page on Facebook NBA Trades. Follow us on Twitter, NBA underscore Trades. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, NBA Trades Podcast. We're also on Stitcher, on Google Play. So check us out and leave a review, rate it, and I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>